Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is jumping. The objective of today's podcast, as always, is to provide a safe place for educators. As you all know, if your school or district or organization is looking for a speaker, please email me at purposeoriginatepurpose.com. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. If you can please introduce yourself and tell the audience about what do you do? Sure. So hi, everybody. My name is Andrea Bittner. I am an English language learner teacher, reading specialist, first time author this year and a speaker. And I'm in my 22nd year of teaching just outside of Philadelphia, PA. So you mentioned you said Eng English language teacher. Yes. So the acronym's always changing all over the country, right? So some people call it ELL, English language learner. Some people call it EL. Some people call it a multilingual learner, I've heard. Um, English as a newcomer. So basically, I get to work with all the amazing kids in the building who are bilingual or becoming bilingual or refining their bilingual skills. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So what does bilingual mean? What does that mean? Well, to me, it means you've got a kid in front of you with an amazing asset. They are getting ready to be able to speak two or more, in many cases, languages, um, including English, in reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Mm, so usually with a different accent or they come, okay, okay, I got you. Yeah, I mean, some of our kids, kids come from all different walks of life, you know, like some of them are, most of our bilingual kids are born here in the mm. US now. Um, some of them, you know, are from different countries. Some of them waited 10 years for a visa and came first before mom and dad. Some of them waited 10 years and came after mom and dad. Um, some of them are adopted. Some of them are exchange students. Um, and some of them cross the border. And I work with all those different students. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me a little bit uh, about yourself. What, what inspired you to get into education? Why education? So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't know that I was going to become an English language teacher, but I uh, knew pretty early on I had some teachers in high school that really encouraged me in writing. I took this creative writing class, uh, Dr. Beth Wright and Miss Shulman. And they said to me, you know, you're a really strong writer and you really are a social person and you seem to have a positive attitude. You would be a great teacher. And I started to think about it in high school and I thought, well, yeah, I love working with kids. Like, that's what I want to do. So I knew pretty quickly and I went off to Westchester University um, and studied actually at first to be a high school English teacher. And as soon as I uh, got that degree from Westchester University, I was hired right over the weekend by my former principal at the high school I went to. But what was really astounding to me is when I got into that first week of teaching, I was given all the kids in the building that hated school. And, they, and it was such a shock for me, you know, being a kid that loved school and did all the activities and took all the challenging classes. And here I am hopping out of college, like ready to go, had, you know, a fun student teaching experience. And in front of me were that, you know, my very first period of the day were ninth grade freshmen who didn't know how to read. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do about that at that time, because I wasn't trained in college about how to teach kids how to read. And so it bothered me enough after a year 
of working with these kids who taught me more about being a good teacher than I think I could have ever taught them that year. Um, I went back to school and became a reading specialist and I got a master's in reading because it bothered me enough to go, I need to know how to do that. I need to know how to do that. Um, and so from there, I started to work as a reading specialist and I was given the opportunity to work with a group of English language learners one day. And a guy named next to me named Mike Kinko was an EL teacher. And he worked with these kids all over the uh, district at the middle school level. And so I got really curious about working with English language learners and bilingual kids. And so I went back to school again um, and got a certification in what they call ESL at the time. English is a second language. And from there, I started to kind of balance my career between Title I reading and ELL. Mm, mm, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So... The first thing that stuck out to me is that you said you had a group of high school students mm -hmm. who hated school, yeah. right? So actually I want to do um, a little scenario. Okay. And this is my first time doing this. So let's, let's see how it goes. Let's roll with it. Let's do it. All right. So just say my name is Johnny. All right. And you know, I come into class and I think school, what you experienced dealing with students, school is absolutely boring. I don't want to be here. And the last thing I'm worrying about is school. And plus, I probably didn't eat anything last night for dinner. So I'm hungry and school is just the last thing on my mind. So in that situation, how would you, how would you motivate me to want to read? Absolutely. So I have lots of Johnnies, right? I still have Johnnies now that come into school that I work with. And I've worked with kids in grades K to 12. So Johnnies exist at the senior level and Johnnies exist at the first grade level. It doesn't matter. Um, but what I've found in my career is that all kids, whether they're high school kids, middle school kids, elementary kids that don't like reading or don't like school in general, or just all kids for that matter that, you know, or do love school. I feel like they're looking for three things from us. And if I, we can get them to feel these three things from us at least 75% of the time, I feel like they will work for us. And that is, they need to feel respected, they need to feel accepted, and they need to feel admired. So I would start with, with Johnny by finding out what Johnny likes outside of school. What's your life like outside of school? Who are the people that are important to you? Who are the people that help you or may not help you? What are the resources that I can give your mom in order to help you get that food that you might need in the morning or that ride you might get to get to school to get that free lunch or that free breakfast. So I need to meet your needs. I need to meet you where you are and discover what Johnny's normal looks like because, mm. because his normal is not always my normal, right? Mm. So that's the respect part. I'm going to respect the life that you're living and I'm going to investigate to learn some more about it. And I'm going to show you number two, that I accept it. Mm. I accept the life that you live and I'm a person that can help you to get to where you want to go. So whether you're having a great day or a not so great day, I'm going to accept and admire you for who you are. And that all comes down to relationships. And that takes time. That's not going to happen in a day. It's not going to happen in a week. That might happen over months or even a year. Or you might not even see it. But, you know, you're slowly building that rapport with him and other kids like him to see that, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid or buying what you're selling is going to get them to where they want to be because they trust that you respect, accept, and admire them. Mm, nice, nice. Yeah. 
Now, I know you mentioned, so this was your first year. So now I know that you, you mentioned, you said, you know, college didn't necessarily prepare you mm-hmm. for, for that. So what was your whole mindset when you first got into the classroom with students that, you know, that do not know how to read? Was it like, man, you know, man, this is too much? Or like, yeah. what was your mindset first walking in the door? Oh, all of it. I mean, I was going home crying. You know, my my whole first year of teaching because I thought, I don't know what this is. This was not my normal, right? It was, so to me, it was really overwhelming, you know, to to work with kids who had no food in the mornings and didn't have a positive experience with school and had a lot of resources they might need. And I wasn't sure how to navigate all that for them and teach. And so what I, and filling in the gaps, you know, all the, the decoding skills and the phonics skills and the comprehension skills that they may have missed along the way, I wasn't prepared for at that time. So I would go home really stressed, really, you know, cried a lot, um, but I wasn't willing to give up. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I had, you know, experiences of fights in the classroom. I had experiences of kids that were truant. They didn't want to come to school. I had experiences of kids that, like I said, couldn't read or, you know, seemed to have really low motivation. So they were kind of the the channels that I was trying to work through, you know, learning more about being better at it myself at that time. But what I realized later on and that I wish I would have known that very first year is that that's when you need a team. You can't do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. That's when that we before me strategy comes into play. Mm-hmm. And that's when it's about who can I access to get onto the team with me to help this kid? Because I don't have to do it all myself. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a few questions that came to my mind as you were breaking that down. So let's say in those situations where you're teaching students that are not motivated to learn mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned getting into fights. What about students who were class clowns? Did they make jokes? A lot of jokes when, when you were teaching? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I think for them, you know, they've got such strength in that, you know, that they can make people laugh. And that's a strength, you know, that they Mm -hmm. can have fun. You just have to help them channel the, you know, the when and where of it, you Mm -hmm. know. And so I have class plans all the time. And they they're, you know, the kids that I work with are, I say, the most lovable at risk kids in the building. And sometimes you have to figure out why they're being the class clown. Is Mm -hmm. it because they'd rather be a class clown than read? Is it because they'd rather avoid, you know, use that go-to defense mechanism to avoid something like, right, maybe that they don't want to do, you know, or is it that they're just, you know, genuinely like a future Vegas star and they've got some one-liners that they appreciate the attention for and they want everybody to know it, you know? So you kind of have to kind of get into a little bit as the why, because that behavior is communication. Hmm. Behavior is communication. So every time a kid acts out, you know, positively, negatively, or somewhere in between, they're trying to tell you something. Mm. You know? So I always think, I think class clowns are great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I like, I like your thought process on that. And so you mentioned the team. When, when you say a team, what does that look like? You know, being a school teacher. Yeah. You mentioned the team. I mean, there's so many great people, you know, we live at school most of our day, every day. And, you know, the people that you surround yourself with are going to be the people that, you know, help pull these kids in when they're out there drowning somehow. So when I say a team, I mean, at least, you know, when I work with bilingual kids or at-risk kids or Title I kids, everybody in the building needs to know who these kids are because most of their interactions with them are going to happen outside of my classroom. 
And mm -hmm. we can't, nobody reaches success alone. So mm -hmm. when I say team, I mean the principal, the assistant principal, the secretary team, the custodial team, the maintenance team, the cafeteria team, the content area team, all of the specials teachers in the building, you know, you you have to act as a team in order to help someone be successful. And so, it, you know, it's communication is key. And in order to have communication, you've got to let people know what's happening with our students. And so all of the people in the building that interact with your student are going to be on that team. Mm. And so when you realize that, now how what did that communication look like? So would you just as you go by you will mention that or like how does that work in terms of communication yeah so you got to be really purposeful about it right so and you have to be respectful of the fact that everybody else has other stuff going on too so mm -hmm. the communication piece is important and even finding that out when is the best time for us to meet i need 10 minutes of your time today do you want me to zoom with you do you want me to stop by do you have a prep? Do you have a lunch? Do you want me to hop in after school? Do you want me to text you? You know, what is the best form of communication to get the most information from each other? And so I think just having that conversation of even what looks best for you and what will meet best needs for me is the starting point. And then from there, it's now I've got those 10 minutes that I can sit down and talk to you via any of those avenues in order to come up with a plan for our student. Wow. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And when you talk about you know that first year that you had was that what what you know you've been in education for 22 years right yes okay so what has been the toughest year for you as an educator i mean i think i'll say what most people say which is the last two years the last two years the last two years the, the COVID era has definitely mm. been one that you know i like to say when the COVID hit, people started to have to learn what I like to be almost become like our bilingual kids and learn a whole different language in terms of technology. You know, it happened on a dime. We were in school on a Friday and on a Monday, our entire world was flipped upside down. Mm. And so we had to start to navigate, you know, how to use Zoom, how to use Microsoft Teams, how to access our kids, how to get them laptops, how to get them working, how to switch to all these apps and you know, notifications to be able to use our classroom materials digitally, um, how to not be with our peers all day that we were used to with those side conversations or those quick check-ins and for support. Um, and so everything, our schedule, our structure, our physical buildings, like everything was taken from all of us. And mm -hmm. so we had to learn really quick how to become leaders again, because our kids and families, right, they were looking to us to continue some type of normalcy for our kids. Mm. And so when everything was shaken up ourselves, we had to quickly, you know, um, be able to get into a state where we could do that. So at that, the past two years in that constant shifting of we're in school, we're out of school, we're hybrid this week, we're back to normal, we're in a mask, we're out of a mask. The laws are changing by county, by state, you know, et cetera, uh, have been a lot. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So that that COVID the yeah. last two years, you say, was has been has been the struggle. So, what keeps you going? Because honestly, right now, as we all know, man, with the the school shooting that just happened, you know, that's been heartbreaking. You know, teachers are walking out, and I've read like districts aren't even hiring or considering hiring people who don't have credentials, who don't have degrees to come in and fill in the vacancies. You know, so for you, 
you know, what has kept you going during this this pandemic? You know, for me, I think it's it's a few things. Um, number one, the kids, you know, the kid, the kids need us, you know, and I encourage people out there that are thinking about becoming teachers. Come join us. You know, it's, it's a wonderful life. It's an excellent way to give back every single day. No day is ever the same. You know, your students are always going to be there with needs and, and experiences and, you know, uh, appreciation for you and the work that you're doing. You have the second piece is your colleagues need you. You know, your colleagues need you. You're in and out day and day with the same, you know, team of people who support each other, lift each other up, celebrate the wins accept that they're going to be small at times and larger at other times, uh, go through the losses together, but you always have that support system around you. And so I encourage people, A, to either come into the field or B, not to leave. Um, Principal L is a, is a friend and colleague of mine, and he travels around the country speaking. And he, along with a lot of other people, always say, like, every kid deserves somebody out there to be crazy about them. And our mm-hmm. kids need educators, you know, people who are truly feel it's a calling because it is. To, to get you know to go out there and learn how to be crazy about kids and and how to help them right right that's good stuff that's good stuff so what about in your experience of educ in education have you experienced hmm want to see how I can phrase this question let's let's reverse do you feel like as an educator that lesson planning is necessary? What are your thoughts on lesson planning? I do think lesson planning is necessary because you it, it's kind of like your roadmap for your day. Mm. You know, and if you're a teacher that works with different students at different levels that have different strengths and different areas of need, you have to have a roadmap for how you're going to help them you know, reach to the finish line. And mm-hmm. so to be purposeful in your planning is important. Mm-hmm. That's real. That's real. And how do you how do you feel like you know, well, let me ask this question in terms of like when when working with a student, what was one student that you had that man? You was like, I don't know if this 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 student right here is going to make it through. I don't know if this student is going to graduate, but mm-hmm. you working with that student consistently, you know, they were able to overcome their challenges. And you don't have to say any names, of course, but do you have a story that sure. you can kind of mention? Yeah, absolutely. I had a student uh, happened to be a kid that had crossed the border and he had gone through a lot of trauma in his life and he came into school as a teenager. He didn't know he was coming. So he was picked up one day and brought here without any warning. So he had a lot of feelings about that. Right. And coming to this country. And then he got here and he was given, you know, an option of you're not going back. So you're here and it's time for you to learn how to survive. And it took us six months to a year of constant conversations and lunches and phone calls and check-ins with mom and just to get him to come to school because he was terrified and to work through the traumas that had occurred on his trip here and then to start to let him dip his toe in the academics that we expected. Oh, and by the way, you wasn't literate in his first language. So now he has to learn English and learn how to read all over again as a high school kid. Oh, wow. And so, right. So all these barriers are stacked up against him. And I can't tell you how many times, how many lunches we had where he would say, I'm going back. I'm just going to go back. I don't want to mm-hmm. be here. I'm just going back. And four years later, when he graduated from our high school, 
That was one feather in our team's cap that we wore proudly because after about two years of that constant conversation, we weren't giving up, right? You have to be able to have on what I call the telescope when our kids can only see the microscope. You know, mm. they, they can't always see the big picture. They're not adults yet. We can, mm. you know, and so being willing to do that grind day in, day out, hearing the same conversations, giving the same words of encouragement, holding them accountable, for, you know, when you knew that they were ready to dip their toe in more of the academics to start to hold them accountable for turning in their assignments and giving them the supports they needed to do so and connecting with their parents at home. All of that for years is what helped him be successful. But finally, when he graduated, that was a pretty exciting day. Wow. And so with the parent, was the parent, with the student, was the parent very supportive at, at the beginning of the process, like you didn't have any pushback with the parent. The communication was a pretty smooth process. And in that example, it was. And in my district in particular, our students become more proficient than their parents in terms of English proficiency pretty quickly. Right. Okay. Because they are getting a free education. You know, they're in school every single day. They don't have a choice. They're not going back or they were born here and they've been given the opportunity to go to school here. And so they are getting what I call that free ticket, right? Every single day while mom and dad are out working and their workplace may or may not have supports in place if they want to learn yeah. more English. It may or may not, but they, they've given their children this gift of becoming bilingual and they're handing them to us to help fill in the English side, right? So, you know, that, that parent, yes, they're supportive, but they're relying on their child to become the family leader. Mm, interesting. Talk about that. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, you know, I have six and seven year old students who I see um, out in the community and, and mom and dad rely on them to translate for them. Oh, or wow. I, I have high, and they do it proudly, you know, and I have high school students who mom and dad rely on to help them with documentation and writing. You know, uh, so and I also have parents who are completely bilingual people, proficient in English and in Arabic or and in French or and in Russian, etc. And they're just proud to have their student following along behind them. You know, so not, you know, all students, parents are relying on them, but many of them are and where I come from in particular. Wow, that is that is an interesting fact. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. Wow. OK, mm -hmm. so how do you. So when you have students that come from different backgrounds, they have a different accent. What is like what is the first thing that that you do when you when you work with that particular student? Sure. Like how, how do you? Sure. So, well, the first thing I want to point out, which I always laugh about, including myself, is like we all have accents. Right. So, you know, everybody from everywhere in the U.S., you could people pick out on from Philly pretty quick. You know, it's so, yeah. you know, so it's everybody in the world has one. And physically. You can't, as a young child, if you're born here and you're learning and educated in English and you are speaking a different language at home, you're not going to acquire an accent as if you did, came here as a teenager. Because as a teenager, your throat has already physically formed as a child to all of the sounds that you've learned to make in your area, right? So I'm from Philly. You said you're from Georgia. You know, I've met, I was in Texas last week presenting out there. I've been to Florida a few weeks ago. So everybody sounds a little bit different. And that's because your throat physically formed the way your sounds are going to be made as a child. And as soon as you hit adolescence, they're not changing. Hmm. So, so even as you grow into an adult, people will say, oh my gosh, I can't lose my accent. No, you can't. No, you can't because they're, it's physically there. Does that make sense? So yes, 
So the accent piece is, is really interesting for people because to me, it's like, a you know, if you meet someone with an accent, it's a sign of bravery. You know, they, that means that they're probably bilingual and they've learned many languages. But um, so that's that piece. Can you ask me the second piece again of your question? So, yeah. So I have a, I have another question. Okay. From, <laughs> so I want to get to that question, but now I'm interested. So if. Never mind, that doesn't matter. All right. So when you first when you first work with a. Oh, yes. Yeah. You first work with the student. Yeah. Right. So when I first meet our Yale students, we have a lot of questions, right? So mm -hmm. first, I want to research a lot of background information. Were they born here? Are they coming from a neighborhood down the street where they were educated in English the whole time? Or are they coming from a different country? Where What did their education look like? Were they formally educated? Like I have kids that came from Africa who went to prestigious boarding schools. And mm -hmm. then they came here and they already learned British English over there. So now it's just a transfer of skill. I have kids that had never been to school that came in from Central America who had never stepped foot in a regular structured school building. And so they were not literate in their first language. So that's when we have to start from, okay, we're gonna first teach you how to read. I have kids who were um, proficient in three or four languages from Lebanon when they came over here who already knew French, Arabic, and English when they walked in the door. And so it just depends, right? You have a lot of questions on what was your formal education like before you came here? And what supports may you need? You might not need support in English. You might just be an amazing bilingual kid already. Mm. You know, so you may not need Mrs. R's class. You know, you might not. So that's something to ask. The other questions we ask are, what do their literacy skills look like in reading, writing, listening, and speaking of English? And we test that. And then from that test, we get a score with their areas of strength and their areas of need. Do they need support or not? And what classes should we enroll them in to work on their skills? Mm. And then with those skills, now, do you teach some of those skills? All of them. Yeah. Oh, all of them. Oh. Yeah, we do it all. Yep. Okay. Got you. So what are some of those skills that you. So, uh, for example, I have students I had this year um, from Asia who were really great at reading and writing English. They could drill and skill it better than some of my American speaking kids. But when it came to listening and speaking, they were not strong in those skills. Mm. So we had to work on those skills in class. Gotcha. You know, so that would be an example. It just depends on, on what their area of need might be. And then we use the materials we have to teach that. Got you. Got you. OK. And let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your book. I know that you mentioned that you write it, that you wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. Um, so about uh, 10 years ago, I was working with one particular group of students. They were all high school students at the time. There were about 40 of them and they spoke about 25 different languages. And they came from all walks of life, like we talked about before, adoptive students, exchange students, border kids, visa kids that were born here, kids that were not born here, etc. And there was one particular family I worked with, the Lopez family, and I had worked with all seven of their children. It was all boys and one girl. And I worked from, they happened to be from the country of Salvador. And I traveled to Salvador uh, three times in my career and knew many of the people that they knew down in that area. And so I worked with uh, from Sergio all the way down to Nancy and Nancy was the youngest and the only female in the family. And I worked through these students and we had this huge classroom family and we had this huge monitor in our room that said, what's your plan? And the kids knew at the coming into the high school level that their plan could not be, I'm going to go back to my country or I'm not going to be successful here. That couldn't be your plan. We had to have that telescope thinking. We have a plan for you and we're going to work with you through it until we reach graduation. 
And so Nancy was one of my students that went through that plan. And we had this huge T-shirt day where our alumni would come back on their senior year and they would hand them a T-shirt with something on it that would say where they were headed next, whether that was military, career, job training, university, didn't matter. We were there to celebrate this chapter's done. We're excited about the next one. And our alumni are here to tell you all about the amazing things waiting for you out in the world. And so Nancy was my student that graduated from that program along with all the other kids. And about a year after I was uh, done teaching her, I was teaching one day and there were a bunch of helicopters outside. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of helicopters out there today. Like, I hope everything's okay. And my district happens to be in, in between a lot of train tracks. And so about an hour after I was teaching, my principal came down to get me to let me know that one of my students had been hit by the train. Oh, and wow. that student was Nancy. And unfortunately, she had made a choice that day to wear headphones and walk along the inside of the track. And as mm. she was walking along the inside of the track, she was clipped from behind by the acela. Mm. And so that experience and, uh, and she was killed. She died that day. And unfortunately, at that time, it threw our family, this EL family that we had and the teachers we worked with and the school we worked with into a huge trauma. And her parents, mom was a pastor or dad's a pastor and mom works alongside him in the city. And we went into a huge sense of trauma and they came to get me. And one of the most troubling parts of that day, in addition to the death of our student, was that Nancy's parents were learning to speak English themselves. But there was nobody on the force who spoke Spanish that was immediately able to assist them. So they were notified and could figure out that something had happened and that one of their children had died, but they didn't know who it was. So they were up at that track for hours waiting for somebody to be able to communicate with them um. and tell them what had happened. And so from that experience, we went through the next couple of weeks of working with mom and dad, and I still know them today, and working through the process, right, of burying their daughter, navigating a funeral with immigration, trying to get her brother to be allowed to come up and bury his sister, the community, the school pieces of all these kids we worked with that were devastated. And so one of my jobs at that time was to speak at her funeral. And so we went through this process with mom and dad. And at the time I went to speak at her funeral and I wrote this short poem at the time and it was called Take Me Home. And it was an homage to Nancy's crossing. She happened to be one of my kids that had crossed the border. And so I took that and I read it at her funeral and I continued to teach. And a couple months later, I saw that poem sitting out on my desk and I thought, well, maybe somebody could use her story. Maybe something like this would benefit them. So I sent it out to a bunch of publishers on a whim. And about six months later, a publisher got back to me and they're like, hey, Andrea, we really like your poem, but we don't want you to write a poem. We want you to write a book. And we're going to give you about six months to do it. And if you come back with something that we like, we're going to take you on and we're going to publish it. So I started to think, well, I don't want to just tell her story. I want to tell all their stories because they're so different. And everybody thinks a lot of times the English language learners are the same and they're not. And so I took that six months and I went back and I interviewed 11 of my former English language learning students who are now in like their late 20s, early 30s. And I asked them the question I thought that maybe we had missed. And I said, you know, when you were in school, we knew your data. We knew how to accommodate you. We knew what assessments to give. We worked with you for those years to get you to reach your goals. But now that you're a young bilingual professional living and working in the world, and you can reflect back on that experience and communicate it in a way that some, means something to you, what was that really like for you? 
And so from every conversation we had, we were able to create a chapter through their eyes. I hit almost every continent and almost every experience. And we created Take Me Home. It's the true story. And we weave Nancy's story through it of 11 of my former bilingual kids who give a firsthand account of what it's really like to become bilingual in the U.S. Hmm. And it's written in English and then it repeats in Spanish in the same book. So that's that's our project. That's our work. And that's that's wow. That's really unique. That's a um, man. That story is pretty deep. Yeah. And, and when you went and when you went about choosing to hear other people's stories, mm-hmm. how did you go about those eleven people? Were the, were those the eleven people that that touched your heart and they were just on your mind, or these were the closest people to Nancy? Like, how did you go about your selection of your yeah. eleven people? That's a great question. So I want to say it was a little bit of both. You know, I put the, uh, when we came up with the opportunity, I put the message out to all of the students who I'd worked with over the years, but my goals were to do two things. Number one, to reach as many continents and as many as experience as possible, because I wanted to show that differentiation between experiences. Um, And number two, I wanted to give our former kids the opportunity to show their mission, which was they wanted people to know that when you meet someone learning English for the first time, to treat that time in their life like an asset and not a deficit. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times they walked around feeling like a rotten apple. And so the kids that I reached out to that really felt strongly about spreading that message and about sharing, it's hard to share, right? You're putting yourself in a state of vulnerability when you're telling your truth about how you felt. But I will say that the book came out as a very positive, inspirational story. Um, and I think that they are really, really proud of it. Mm, mm. Very, very inspiring. Very inspiring. Such a story, actually. Thank you. So in terms of now you have the book, you mentioned that you are a presenter. Now, when you go and present, is, is this the story that you, you talk about or like when it comes to your presentations? How do you normally go about that? So the presentation piece kind of happened organically. Um, I was getting the book was is less than a year old. It just came out in July of last year. Mm-hmm. And so some people came to me. Educators are reading the book all over the country and they're resonating and connecting with it. And lots of you know great things are coming out of it. And they said, hey, Andrea, we love this book. Will you come talk to our teachers? And I was like, all right. So I created a presentation, but I call it Take Me Home, Unmasking the Fear of Communicating with English Language Learning Students and Connecting with Families. And so, yes, to answer your question, we use the story for part of the presentation. But in addition to that, we built in real strategies that teachers can use tomorrow to communicate with the all families in a more effective way and connect the kids building wide district wide county wide and then the kids in the book a few of them are videographers and documentarians now actually created do- short documentary pieces of them talking about their experiences and we weave that through it too so we we expanded you know much beyond the story the story is the vehicle for the message but the strategies and practicality that came from it have been really well received. Um, I just presented in Texas last week to mm-hmm. educators out there and very well received and in Florida a few weeks ago. And we're currently setting up a schedule for this year. Mm, got you. Got you. OK, OK. And so basically, once the book published, people start reaching out to you. Yes. OK, but what um, what is a publisher? Austin McCauley. No, no. I'm asking, like, what is what is a publisher? Like, what what's the purpose of a publisher? 
Well, for me, you know, the purpose of sending it out to publishers was to see if they felt like it would be a story that would be helpful and beneficial to the world. Um, and then to go through the editing process, you know, to have someone work through the story with me and, and push me to expand it or uh, um, make changes to it and get some feedback. And so you sign on with the publisher to take you through, through the process. And then like they would create the cover, you know, for the book with their artists. Gotcha. Um, and then we had it translated into Spanish as the second half of the book. So there are so many moving parts behind designing a book that are more than just what I was ready to do alone at the time. Yeah. So the publisher, they also market your book too, right? Um, yes and no. You know, they, they, Publishing companies do some marketing for you, but really as an author, when you start, you know, you receive your book, it's, it's your job to build that platform and to continue to spread that message. Got you, got you, got you. Okay, okay, interesting. And so you mentioned some strategies that, that teachers can automatically take away and start, start doing. Do you mind to talk about a few of those strategies that you, that you usually encourage teachers to do? Sure. So, you know, one of the first things we talk about in our slide besides our story is, you know, the 10 essential questions that teachers should ask when they receive an English language learner. So we dive into, you know, different things that they should be asking. And then it goes into well, what are the questions you're building and your support team should have to consider about where that student's going to be with different opportunities through the day. So I've got a slide on that. And then we go into, well, what are the connections that kids can make with other bilingual kids building wide, district wide and county wide? And here are a bunch of resources and ideas, you know, that I've experienced over the years that are helpful to connect our kids. And then it goes into, well, how do you reach their parents? Well, here are eight resources you can use immediately to connect with them and communicate with them effectively that are some are free and some are district paid for. Um, and then it goes a little bit in towards the end towards here are some pieces of our documentary about what the kids have to say about their teachers. You know, and here's a thank you to you for what's going on in your district. So it kind of walks them through all those different pieces. Wow. Wow. And you, you, you were able to put this presentation down. Did you have a, you have a whole team or this was something that you kind of did on your own? This, uh, this was me. This was oh, me. You know, I put, you. It, put it all together. I mean, the kids, I call them kids. They're in like the thirties now, but the kids in the book are, you know, are responsible for all the documentary pieces. Like we worked together and came up with the ideas, but you know, they really boots on the ground, you know, put that work for that. And I'm proud of them for that. Wow. Um, but as far as the presentation and the resources from it, I've created all of those myself, but that just comes from 22 years of being surrounded by amazing people and good teaching, you know? And so, and, and I'm always reading, you know, I'm always learning and reading. Got you. Got you. Got you. Well, I have definitely enjoyed you on the Schoolhouse podcast and I, you and I appreciate me. you reaching out. I really do. Thank sure, you. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Most definitely. So I always like to ask this question, the last question, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm really looking forward to continuing to work with English language learners and their families. I'm really enjoying meeting teachers right now. You know, I'm continuing to teach, but I'm meeting teachers from all over the country. And I really wish every teacher got that opportunity to meet other teachers from other states and hear about their challenges and their successes. Because when I do that, I find that we're really not all that different, you know, from each other. And so um, I see myself continuing to present continuing to write, continuing to, you know, teach in some capacity and just, you know, enjoying our time in the field. All right. Sounds great. Sounds great. And that concludes our podcast. And thank you once again for 
coming and sharing your wisdom with us today. Absolutely. And if anybody ever out there listening wants to reach out, if you need support with your English language learners, um, you know, if you'd like to read Take Me Home, you know, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, all that good stuff. But you can find me um, at AndreaBittnerBooks.com or on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, at Andrea Bittner Books. And I'd be happy to help you in any way I can. Sounds great. Sounds great. And thank you for your time once again. Thank you. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast office today. Man, what a what a powerful podcast today. You know, the biggest the biggest takeaway from the podcast that I learned that that I hope that you all are able to walk away with is hearing the story about Nancy, you know, and how tragic it was. But People were it. The story is so powerful that now the story is being told nationwide. So that 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 in itself is powerful. And I and I and like I always mention, I know that it's tough being a teacher in a pandemic. But you know, the children need you. You know, other teachers need you. The administrators they need you. So hang on, hang in there, hang tight. Keep the faith. Stay hopeful, stay optimistic, and I'm pretty sure the reward is uh, very beneficial at the end. So thank you all for listening to the Schoolhouse Podcast, and I am out.